Tis the season for acapella. Pentatonics, pentatonics. Satan has finally left my body. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> what? This movie's good. This movie's good. <laughs> oh, get that out of the way now. I love it. Oh, my God. I'm so happy. Hannah <laughs> Lee is the maybe the standout performance of this entire franchise. She's oh yeah, I think a so. comedy genius. I think I yeah. agree with that. She's quite funny. I give you that. I, I think so. That is all I will give you. But welcome again to the Good Trash Undercast. We gather around a table. We discuss films you'll never discuss in a film size course. This week's is no exception uh, for sure. We're talking about Pitch Perfect 3. Why would you do this in a class? You wouldn't. Um, and that's why we're talking about it on this show, which is our part three's part, duh, uh, where we're doing the second time we're running through a trilogy uh, marathon where we're looking at the third parts of various film trilogies, quadrilogies, extended franchises, what have you. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. And uh, freshly returned from uh, veterinary school and also failing at flight school, I am Dalton Stewart. Yes, welcome. Glad you are here, buddy. Um, in case you're tuning in to the Good Trash Honorcast for the very first time, this is an analysis show, not a review show. We will reveal the ending of the film in which um, surprising things happen. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> so many. It becomes a movie you did not expect, and we'll get to that, but we'll avoid spoilers for the most part if you, in case you've missed Pitch Perfect 3. Um, you've not missed anything, but in case you have um, and want Fire. to not be spoiled, uh, that is totally fine, and we'll try to avoid that by doing this. We'll do a synopsis, spoiler-free. We'll do thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews, which is generally spoiler-light. We'll do a syllabus, I guess, in which uh, the spoilers will be moderate, and then we'll get down to business and do analysis, I suppose, in which uh, there will be major spoilers. Uh, we will talk about what happens to John Lithgow, and uh, the fitting of his pants will probably be something we'll address, um, because it was something I noticed. Uh, and it's about the most interesting thing about the film, is John Lithgow's pants. So, without any further ado, let's Wrong. hear those uh, synopsis from Arthur Gordon. Go ahead, buddy. Life after college isn't quite what the Barden Bellas anticipated. They all find themselves stuck in a bit of a rut, professionally and personally. After an embarrassing miscommunication brings the troop back together, they decide to pursue a spot on a USO tour through Europe. Along the way, they have to find peace beyond university life, determine what family really means, oh, and maybe bring down an international con man who has a personal connection to one of the women? I guess so, yes. That is what happens in the film. Um, I was the only one that was a first-time watcher, wasn't I? I had seen it before. Um, I had not seen this uh, one before. I, I had seen Pitch Perfect, uh, the original, uh, at least once, maybe twice. But I have not seen the second movie. But this this was also a first viewing for yeah, me. Yeah, same with me. I've I've seen the original, but I've not seen the sequel, and uh, definitely not the threequel until uh, preparing for this film. So I'm going to go to you first, then Dalton, as the other virgin viewer. Um, what is your thumbs up, thumbs down review of Pitch Perfect three? Well, off air, we were having a little bit of fun in one of our, our in our uh, group chat, uh, where Arthur pointed out that his one of his favorite things uh, in our uh, uh, Monster of the Week campaign, which we record over at uh, Patreon.com forward slash GTM. Uh, if you give us some money, you can listen to us play uh, Monster of the Week over there. But Arthur mentioned his one of his favorite things about the uh, evolving canon um, of our campaign is that. There's a, a just randomly people within the world are very uh, dedicated to the Rotten Tomatoes meter um, <laughs> on their their opinion of a movie, and I think Pitch Perfect Three is maybe a the er example of a movie with a bad Rotten Tomatoes score that is very good, 
Um, I think Pitch Perfect 3 is an excellent second sequel. Uh, again, having not seen the middle installment of this trilogy, uh, I am a big fan of the kind of gigantic leap in logic that the third, the third sequel asks, or the second sequel asks uh, of this franchise. Uh, because, it, I don't know, it is a kind of inherently silly premise, right? It is a, a film about a, a college acapella group uh, that has now gone on for two more movies, and they had to find a reason for these these you know these women who are definitely not in college anymore um and you know I, the film doesn't want to strain credulity and ask you to believe that all these people in their late 20s to early 30s are you know still in their first four years of school um i, I again they th this franchise finds a way to keep all of these people together in a way it's interesting Kay cannon uh comes back I, she's credited on the second one i think she's also was a writer on the first movie i could be wrong there but i know that uh uh Blockers uh, was kind of her big directorial uh, uh, outing after um, Pitch Perfect 2 and 3. And I, I think it's a funny screenplay. Uh, Trish C. Uh, is uh, in the director's chair on this one, taking over from Elizabeth Banks over on part two. Uh, and she has a really interesting career. Uh, if, if you kind of go look into her background as a uh, uh, both as a professional dancer, um, she's like a competitive ballroom dancer and danced uh, in the Penn State Ballet Company. Uh, directed and choreographed a bunch of OK Go's music videos. Uh, just a really interesting career. Uh, directed a Step Up, one of the All In, one of the sequels. Uh, she, she did that prior to Pitch Perfect Three. And uh, again, I just I think the the team that comes together here makes a really fun movie. It is uh, visually uh, engaging. It's got fun dance numbers and uh, set pieces. Um, I remember more of the plot of Pitch Perfect 3 than I do of Star Trek Beyond. So say what you will about it, it is at least cohesive uh, insofar as that it, it its narrative advances forward. Um, I don't know. I like this movie. Is the USO tour, um, I don't know, inherently kind of weird and jingoistic thing? Sure. But is it a good excuse for these uh, th this this acapella group to get back together? Absolutely. Look, this is a podcast by three dudes who met in college and started doing a podcast together in college. It would be, I think, emotionally dishonest for us to uh, bag on Pitch Perfect 3, a movie about college friends getting back together to do their college hobby because they love it so much. Um, I, I don't know. I think we're obligated to like this at least a little bit. Uh, but even outside of that, I just think it's fun. Uh, I, I was genuinely uh, deeply surprised at where this movie goes, uh, which is rare. You know, you've seen as many uh, movies as the three of us have. You start to figure out most things before they reveal what they have up their sleeve to you. And uh, while I, I certainly did not expect uh, many of the things that happened in this film to happen. Um, and I'm going to leave it at that for right now. Um, because, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to spoil jokes just yet. I'm not going to tell you about all the great bits that this movie has. Um, I don't know. Uh, there, there's a lot here to like. Um, and, you know, and one of them being um, is acapella real music. And I think that's kind of fun that the, 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 it's a narrative hook for a, a second sequel in this franchise at the very least. Um, and, uh, you know, because the movie itself is also kind of aware that that's not the most interesting dramatic hook of is this acapella group going to be bullied into submission by these other musical groups? Uh, the movie has to find some life or death stakes to introduce to things, but I'm fine with it. I think it's very funny and it reminds me of, uh, you know, the way movies uh, in the like mid to late eighties were paced where suddenly college students find themselves in a diehard scenario. 
I don't know. I'm into it. I think this movie's very fun, and uh, I think there is more here to talk about uh, than uh, would would immediately seem apparent. Wow. Okay. Well, thanks for that. Arthur, go. I can't even speak right now. Wow. I am having the time of my life right now. I could tell you all that, dear listener. Uh, I am just waiting for the other shoe to drop, and I am loving it. Uh, but it's not going to be by me, because I... I, I I find myself probably being more positive on this franchise than most people. I was looking at some letterbox reviews um, because I, I like the franchise quite a bit. I, I've seen the first movie several times. I, I, I really enjoy the first movie. I, I, I mentioned in my letterbox review for it. I, I love Anna Kendrick, I'm a huge celebrity crush on her. I think she's just the most adorable person in the world. And my syllabus was almost based around her. I, I love her. Uh, I like acapella. I, I like mashups. I, I like uh, The Breakfast Club, which the first movie pulls quite a bit from. A lot of pastiche, which we talked about last week. Uh, and so I, I really, I mean, I, it's got a special place in my heart. And I rewatched two and one this week in addition to watching three. Rewatched the whole franchise to kind of measure them up against each other. Look at you, Arthur. Like being a tr- trilogy completionist two weeks in a row. I was well, going to do Bad great. Boys, Full but it's homework. no longer streaming. So um, anyway. I uh, I enjoy this movie quite a bit. I, I I do think it's the weakest in the franchise, and uh, I, I you know Rebel. I mentioned this with the first movie. Your mileage is going to vary with Rebel Wilson, and she has got the kind of shtick and uh, persona that's for me is very much uh, a little bit goes a long long way. Uh, I think she gets some fun lines, but she can be way too much, way too quick. Um, but everybody else I love. I, I, Brittany Snow, Haley Steinfeld, Anna Kendrick. Uh, uh, you mentioned her earlier. I can't think of her name. Uh, the Asian girl. Uh, Hannah Mae Lee. Hannah yeah, Mae as Lee. Lily yeah. and or Esther, and depending or Esther. on which uh, version of her you ask. She yeah. gets one of the, the, the supporting she gets one cast of the best. in this. Is super strong. Yeah, Cynthia Rose. I can't remember this character name or the performer's name. <laughs> um, but she also does, she, I mean, she does a lot of work. She's written a lot of songs for Rihanna, um, which is really cool. And so it's a fun cast, and uh, Elizabeth Banks obviously serving as producer, executive producer, um, Kay Cannon. Uh, I love Blockers. I think it's a fascinating movie. I think she does. Uh, she's co-writing this one. I think she's got sole credit on two. Uh, she doesn't have credit on one, I believe. Um, okay. But uh, I think that's noticeable because the, the differences between two and one are obvious, and that kind of furthers here because uh, it, you know it really does lean heavy into absurdity here in a way. That I think John Wick does, right? I think that mm-hmm. the first movie is very played... St- I mean, the first movie is played as straight as a movie about an acapella group could be. And it does have some of that same absurdity as uh, uh, one of Will Ferrell's early 2000s professional movies that he did, Anchorman, Talladega Nights, Blades of Glory, mm-hmm. these kind of parody, satire sports movies. Uh, it feels like it's in that camp. It also feels heavily influenced by a movie like Bridesmaids, which comes out a year or two years before. And it feels like it's kind of trying to target that same niche. It's also one of the few female-led franchises I can think of mm-hmm. that's not mm-hmm. Charlie's Angels. Uh, and and so I am really fascinated by it. And, and this movie really doubles down on that absurdity because it does become this kind of weird hostage, diehard spy thriller thing, uh, which is just so out of left field. Uh, but I think it does have a lot of heart, and, and I think the chemistry between the cast is really strong. Uh, and that kind of wandering, you know, sense of what do I do with myself after college really hit for me because uh, that was something I kind of struggled with when I graduated. I was like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do because, you know, I was prepared, tried to prepare for 
a professional life after college, and that really didn't pan out in any discernible way. Uh, and so that kind of really hits home. Um, do I think it's the best movie? Not really. I mean, I, I think it's got a lot of problems, as a lot of comedies do. It's kind of got that stock 90s comedy feel in a lot of ways. Um, it kind of feels like an Adam Sandler movie from the 90s or early 2000s. Um and I don't think the music is as good in this one as it is in the other two. And I think the film kind of points, uh, I like the riff off here where the film makes a joke out of the Bellas and what they've been about the last two movies. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic. I wish we got to do more with uh, Ruby Rose and the the other groups here because there's a really interesting uh, foil there. What? Sorry, I'm still just laughing about uh, Ruby Rose's band being called Evermoist. It's a good bit. That's funny, actually. It's a great bit. Uh, and Rebel gets to do some great right. stuff with that too. Um, as your grandmother called Neva Moist, <laughs> I mean, she gets some good stuff. Funny bit. Uh, she does. Some, yeah. I love John Lithgow. You know, I, him doing the Australian thing here is a lot of fun, and and really hammy and campy. And this is a really easy watch for me. Um, and it does kind of feel like a bit of a odd, lackluster weird conclusion to this trilogy and it raises a lot of questions, but if you can set that aside, I, I have a lot of fun with it. Um, I mean, it's 90 minutes. It's the shortest of the three and uh, yeah, it's, it's not more of the same, but in some ways it is more of the same. And I think it's just an interesting franchise on the whole. Uh, and it'll be kind of curious to kind of reassess this one in a few years, I think, but that's where I stay. I like it. Uh, I enjoy it. Uh, but I, I do see the flaws in it. So that's, that's I can I can appreciate it, but I also see a lot of the issues that I think people will take umbrage with. As we're about to hear, I'm sure, Dustin, <laughs> I have been waiting with bated breath since the opening moments of this uh, episode where Dalton praised it immediately for you to drop the other hammer. So let's let's see it happen, bud. Oh, man. Okay, so I got to open with this. I like the first Pitch Perfect movie. I really did. I really thought it was a lot of fun. I enjoy it. Uh, Andrew, Anna Kendrick, I love her. And uh, she does have all that charisma for days. And I really appreciate, I like Rebel Wilson. I think she's really hilarious. And so that all works for me. I like the whole sports movie dynamic of an acapella group and the sort of plucky ragtag bunch and assembling your mighty ducks with all your various character types and tropes and whatnot and doing it with all of these ladies in an acapella setting. I mean, I am there for all of that. That is the first movie I've seen. I have not seen the second movie. I come in watching the third movie, which opens up with an explosion, and I go, okay, well, that escalated weirdly, and then goes in you know, three weeks earlier. I'm like, all right, here we go. I'm ready for this movie to be a thing that happens. Okay, they're all, you know, separate. Okay, let's get them all together. Great. That's fine. That's fun, whatever. And then it turns into the Adam Sandler vacation film, in which we've got to get these characters together, these actors together. Where would we like to go? Let's go to Spain, let's go to France, let's go to Italy, and let's make sure we just do a vacation there in which we get paid for doing a movie, sort of. And then that's where everything falls off, because although I like Rebel Wilson, this is not her at her best. She's not her funniest. Although I like Anna Kendrick, and I like the way she sings, she's not even at her best. In fact, the songs, as Arthur's already mentioned, are poorly chosen, and uh, some of them um, just don't don't work. Uh, the dance numbers, I mean, they've got these great crane shots in which you show off just how off time various members of the dancing cast are. They're they're not doing their job right, for crying out loud. And I don't know if it's because they don't care or because they're, I think they're probably quite talented. They're just lazy and they're just throwing this movie together. Uh, they've got some bits they want to throw together. I like the action movie Die Hard scene at the end. Let's just make it that movie. Let's just have a kidnapping and an escape movie for 90 minutes. I mean, I don't see any reason why you can't just throw all that stuff together 
together and do the ridiculousness of slapstick of acapella in the middle of it. I'm for that. Or this, you know, real competition between them and Evermoist and whatever the mm-hmm. Mumford and Son you know, wannabes that they're competing against are. <laughs> That's fine. Let's just do that. Let's make that movie. But they can't decide what movie they're going to make. They can't decide how they're going to work. And then the whole thing ends, and I won't spoil it, but the whole thing ends that nobody really wants to be there in the first place anyway except for one of them. And I hope that's not the story of this podcast, uh, as Dalton was trying to say. I enjoy your company all, and I enjoy doing this all together. I hope I've not just you know, made you all captives under contractual obligation to take these trips with me where we keep going into these movies, because that's how I feel about this movie. It's awful. And uh, disagree. Uh, it, 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 it's it's a disaster. I like Lithgow, um, and I, I think he's very funny in what he's doing. But uh, it's not really one of those things where I'm like, oh, pick a lane. It's just make a movie for crying out loud. Just make a movie because this is just bits, and they're bits poorly sewn together. And uh, and that being said, not all the bits are all that great. Uh, and and again, this the acapella um, sort of. Uh, amazing sort of performance that was uh, the the hallmark of the first movie just isn't there for this movie. I'm not impressed uh, by what they're doing, uh, the the skill of it, uh, on top of just, again, bits that just aren't that funny. I mean, bees. And DJ Khaled, I hope he's not like that in real life. I really hope he's playing a character because I find him insufferable. I, I think oh, he comes off like that in person. Does in he really? Life. That's just... Yeah, that's, that's just DJ Khaled. That's an insufferable human being. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for the record, listener, in case you're old, an old fogey like Dustin and you're not sure, uh, DJ Khaled doesn't do anything. That would be like if I became a DJ. DJ Khaled got his start as a uh, radio disc jockey uh, and you know used to DJ at like clubs sometimes. Um, his literally the only thing that he does is he gets uh, posse cuts together. He knows enough rappers that he can assemble a crew for a, a track featuring a lot of you know notable featured performers, and that's it. Oh, that's okay. what DJ Khaled's job is. He is a joke. Uh, you know, look. Well, maybe the I, movie's I smarter than I thought because that's Pitch Perfect industry. Three. You son of a bitch. I mean, I, I think it's exactly what it is. It, 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 we threw together this posse movie of these various careers that have gone in various directions. And they used to do a thing together, and we'll sort of kind of do that a little bit, but not really. And, yeah, this compilation album. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, okay, I guess that's actually not necessarily an incorrect point. I'm going to go ahead and say I don't see that that is – I think that's a problem to build a music career around. I don't necessarily know that it's a bad thing to build a second sequel around, but I guess we'll get there. All right, well, there you go, dear listener. Um, there are right opinions and there are wrong opinions, and you've heard them both. Um, we're going to move right along the line, and I'm not even going to talk about what Arthur said because, you know, being in the middle, I mean, that's just, I don't even know what to say. That's like, a, well, in the middle, that's the middle of the road, right? It's a long line painted yellow. So that's all I have to say about you, sucker. I am strongly opinionated against this film, uh, and I just want to pick a fight with you, too, because I've been aggressive against Dalton. I love this movie, but I also am not, like, I don't think you're wrong. <laughs> like, that's, you know, like, I, I think it, it does feel like a, like, I think Mighty Ducks 2 and 3 are targeted towards 8 to 10 year olds, and this feels like the exact same movie, but targeted towards 14 to 16 year olds. I guess, maybe. Like, I mean, it, it's that quality of filmmaking. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. You like, know. you know, there's this kind of, kind of cheap. Almost straight to video. Yeah, 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 yeah. And with the theatrical release. And I think it is that, but I, I just love it. I, I think it's a lot of fun. Um, uh, one thing, uh, other thing I'd say is, I, I do think, to your point, I, I think the, the plot line about Anna Kendrick's character, Becca here, and where that resolves, feels like it should have actually gone to Haley Steinfeld 
because uh, of how yeah. the second movie plays. Okay. Because in the second movie, I'll go ahead and spoil that one. Uh, in the second movie, um, Becca's got an internship as a producer. She's working for Keegan-Michael Key um, as a producer. And he he uh, asks her, you know, can she make anything original because she just does all these mashups. And Haley Steinfeld writes songs. And so they team up, and at the end of that, they record a track where Steinfeld's laying down vocals and Kendrick's producing. And so the mm. plot line that I think Kendrick gets here in, in the third film really feels like that should have gone to Steinfeld. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, with where that resolves uh, at the end of the movie, that feels like something that should have maybe been Steinfeld's moment. So it's weird that they went back to Kendrick as kind of, because at the outset of the film, she kind of feels like an afterthought because it's a lot more about Britney Snow's character and, and Rebel's dad. character. Yeah. Uh, and so for them to kind of like, it feels like, uh, hook Kendrick back in there into a kind of a not so natural way is an odd choice because I think it's just cause she's the biggest member of the cast Yeah, and she's kind yeah, of the heart of the first I, film. Arthur, maybe you can confirm or deny this for me. Doesn't pitch perfect to kind of have a uh, freshman versus seniors thing going on with Haley Steinfeld and, and like, uh, the kind of the legacy, uh, Bella's from the first movie, right? And they're like no. a younger crew that's coming up. No, uh, she's uh, so. Huh. All right, quick summation of the the first movie's inciting incident, so or in the second film. So in the second film, it opens with them doing performance at the Lincoln Center, I believe, or one of the Washington centers with Obama in attendance. Wow, and uh, with stock footage, and uh, they do this stunt where Rebel is on a uh, on uh, not a trapeze, but it's uh, the fabric. Streamer, you know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, like Cirque du Soleil kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, she's doing a bit like that. And her Lycra under, uh, pants rip, and she's not wearing any underwear. And the president gets a full view of the moon and down under. Uh, and so it's like this big, <laughs> you know, thing. And the school punishes them by not allowing them to audition new students. But they allow Steinfeld mm. in because she's a legacy, so it's kind of a loophole. But there's not really this, like, freshman seniors thing. It's okay, really I don't about, know where I pick that up from. Yeah. Uh, and so, I, you know, it's more of a conflict of, I don't know. Uh, it's another weird movie. The conflict in that one is more about Becca being a producer and devoting time to that versus her devoting her full attention to the Bellas, if that makes sense. Gotcha. That's kind sure. of the eternal conflict yeah, I, there framed in the world competition, because in that one, they're going to the world finals or whatever mm, to fight the mm, okay. the German team. Um, <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, DOS Sound Machine and DOS Sound Machine Rules. Okay. Uh, DSM is the, is the best thing. Uh, and there's also a riff off with the Green Bay Packers. Um, I'm there for that. So, I mean, 2 really sure. starts to lean into that absurdity a lot more. And this kind of brings that, I think, to another level. Much like John Wick, I, I think it's got that same kind of formula. Mm-hmm. Well, and that was, I guess, the thing that I, I wanted to mention, uh, or, or the reason I asked you, I, I guess, was... Uh, this movie does kind of have a real John Wick 3 quality of like, all right, who can we get? You know, Ruby Rose obviously shows up in John Wick 2. Would have been fun for her to show up in 3. But yeah, John Wick 3 is just a murderer's row of like character actors and uh, fun cameos and, and, and stuff. And I, I think this has a lot of that going on too. And it did just sort of feel like, oh, Haley Steinfeld's like a little bit, skews a little bit younger demographically speaking so maybe they're trying to get in some zoomer dollars along with uh, the millennial dollars that they get from you know anna kendrick and Brittany snow anna camp and you know that that uh that kind of that generation of actors and you know Haley steinfeld's you know a, a couple of steps behind them so that was why i brought it up wondering if there was like a lot of other young bellas in the uh the second movie because it certainly feels like steinfeld's kind of shoehorned into 
uh, getting to go on this tour with the uh, the original team, I guess. No, I, I agree. It she does feel shoehorned. It, it's flimsy. like, yeah. and she has that bit at the end. She's like, well, I've got a final next week. <laughs> They're all talking yeah. about their careers. Right. I love she's like, I've got to get back movie. to school, cannot... guys. I have to take finals. <laughs> well, I guess we could just spoil. Yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and tip the hand now. I like that the end of this movie reveals that actually, you know, the, the, the movie sets up that everybody's like super dissatisfied with their life and everything's falling apart. I do love the reveal at the end of the movie that, no, actually, everybody's got like a pretty solid backup plan uh, for not making money off of <laughs> off of doing yeah. the Bellas. Like, I think it's a very, I don't know, I like it. I like ending the film with this revelation that actually, no, everybody's going to be fine and it's, <laughs> everything's and I, coming up. Uh, Barden Bellas. And I feel like that's a very sincere place that a lot of people find themselves in when you, you know, yeah. take some time and you do look back like, oh, it isn't that bad. And, and you, you have to reframe your vision sometimes. And, and I appreciate that about it. So. Um, so something you were asking about earlier, Arthur, I just want to go ahead and mention uh, Cynthia Rose is played by Esther Dean. So a little, gotcha. little fun stuff there with yeah. the name Esther showing up as an actor name and a character yeah. name. Uh, but I only wanted to make sure we mentioned it because Esther Dean is uh, an Okie. Uh, oh, really? Muskogee native. Grew up in Tulsa. Yeah. So a cool. uh, little Oklahoma love shout out. Thanks, Esther Dean, for giving a, a very good performance in this movie. Yeah, she's, she's a lot of fun uh, throughout the whole you know franchise, I think. And, and that kind of tie, you know, to, to writing for Rihanna is really cool, too. Yeah, well, and it goes to show, I mean, obviously, Haley Steinfeld gets a pop career off of Pitch Perfect, too. Like, I think yeah. this cast has real musical chops, and uh, yeah. I, you know, I appreciate that about the film. Uh, let's came, come what we let's do what we came here to do. That's what I meant. Uh, and actually talk about this movie in a, in a bigger context. Well, you want to do a Dustin, syllabus? I do. Can you, can you tell the, the, the fine folks at home what's about to happen? Yes, uh, we're going to expand the syllabus. We're not going to do what we came to do just quite yet. We're going to uh, expand this in this little thought exercise by which we pretend like we're teaching this class in which we're going to use this movie uh, to teach something. Uh, what is it that you're teaching, and what other movies and or readings would you use in order to augment that? I go to you first, Dalton. What do you say? Well, I... I... I've tipped my hand and revealed that expanding the syllabus is what I come here to do. Uh, sure. Do we have fun when we get down to business? Uh, absolutely. But I think expanding the syllabus. I know is it's where his favorite part because he always puts in a good 10 minutes for his syllabus. <laughs> well, I put a lot of work into these. Um, I do really uh, take Dustin's charge seriously of how can you take some, uh, take a, a movie that does not seem to have any academic value uh, and find academic value within it. And I think the Pitch Perfect franchise has a lot to give us, as Arthur mentioned already. There are not very many trilogies that are female-fronted, uh, and if they are, it's very rare that you have you know, a, a cast that repeats across the entire franchise. It's just not something that happens very often. Um, and to the point of this movie being cheap, yeah, it's a $45 million budget, uh, which seems kind of insane considering the uh, the budget or the uh, the box office haul of the second movie. Uh, they greenlit uh, a part three like within a month of part two opening because of how much damn money it made. Um, and, and I think the budget nature of this franchise, despite its pretty solid box office returns, uh, does go to show uh, a disinterest in female franchises from a lot of studios, uh, in this case, Universal, who uh, also was not interested in um, letting uh, Anna Kendrick and Brittany Snow's characters uh, be in a romantic relationship, uh, despite both of uh, those actors being very into the idea and uh, it, I guess, being something that there's some seeds laid uh, in, in the second movie for, um, according to the internet research that I did. Um, I don't know. I thought that sounded cool, and apparently Universal did not, uh, which is not that surprising. That would have been a better movie. 
I agree. <clears throat> I agree. Uh, Pitch Perfect is feels pretty damn gay uh, already, and it, it really just makes sense to go ahead and let this franchise be explicitly queer. Uh, huge misstep, I feel like, to not do that because there's kind of an inherent like camp and silliness to acapella. Well, we have one I, character I who's think... gay who gets to now join the Air Force at the end, and she yeah, and that boy was it... mm. Yeah, it, it feels weird to let uh esther dean's character just be like uh, arthur do we know that cynthia rose is, is gay from pitch perfect one or two it's been a while since i've seen the first one and obviously haven't seen the second one yeah i, I don't know how expl- i know it's alluded to pretty heavily in one it comes up a little bit okay yes yeah, yeah it does kind of feel I like a weird two, I, mean, I feel like it becomes explicit somewhere i think it is in one because i think okay. she mentions having a girlfriend in the first movie okay okay yeah i wasn't sure again it's been a long time since i saw the first movie and uh that that beat at the end of the movie where it's like well you know now that the military is less homophobic i guess they'll pay for my flights what well, hold on what's going on <laughs> so anyway uh I, I do think that this movie is, is valuable and i think we can pair it with a lot of seemingly disparate films um that that give us a lot of groundwork to cover so this is going to be a a gender and film class uh kind of examining the intersection of female competition and female friendship uh both you know performance or athletic base or just societally based right and, and kind of examining uh roles that uh, women are uh put into by society uh and dynamics that they are encouraged to have amongst each other uh, I, I am obviously not the first person to bring up that, boy, isn't it interesting that the patriarchy makes women compete against each other. Uh, but I, I think these films do a much better job than I do of articulating this point. So very quickly, because I think there are a lot of films we need to look at. A League of Their Own, obviously, we're going to have to look at. We'll be looking at the entirety of this trilogy. We'll be looking at Tangerine uh, by uh, Sean Baker, a Single White Female, the 90s classic. We'll be looking at Karen Kusama's films, Girl Fight, uh, about uh, Michelle Rodriguez as a young female boxer, uh, and Jennifer's Body, about the, uh, the the very messy dynamics of uh, high school friendship between women. Uh, we'll be looking at The Favorite, uh, a story about the very messy uh, nature of court friendships among women. Uh, we'll be looking at I, Tanya, uh, a film explicitly about female competition uh, and uh, the complexities therein. Uh, we'll be looking at Dream Girls, another film about uh, song and performance and collaboration. Uh, we'll be looking at Whip It, starring the uh, recently out uh, Elliot Page. Congratulations, Elliot. Uh, we'll be looking at She's the Man, speaking of uh, more uh, gender performance uh, and, and uh, gender bending stuff. Uh, the, uh, the Amanda Bynes film in which she has to uh, pose as a boy to play on an elite soccer team for some reason. I don't remember. It's been a while since I've seen it. We'll also probably dabble a little bit with the Netflix miniseries Queen's Gambit uh, with Anya Taylor-Joy just because it is uh, about a, a female who is not able. I've been only a couple episodes into the miniseries, so uh, bear there with it me. Is. But it definitely seems to be. Yeah, look, it is, It is, of course, something that I'm watching right now, and I do find <laughs> room for those on my syllabi from time to time. But I think Queen's Gambit is kind of definitely explicitly in con- conversation with these other works right it is about uh, as opposed to uh, you know a woman trying to find companionship or friendship or camaraderie or rivalry with another woman it is uh, about somebody kind of uh, resisting uh, at least from what i've seen uh, attempts by uh, women either in her age group or out of her peer group uh, kind of attempting to be her ally and um, her character not really having much interest in having any friends uh, that that can't further her ability to kick ass at chess. Um, but again, all of these stories. Oh, go ahead, Arthur. Well, as you're going to say, speaking of Anya Taylor-Joy, what about Thoroughbreds? Where are we at with that? Oh my God. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. We could throw Thoroughbreds in there too. Cause I think it, it 
really sits well in, uh, in conversation with a couple of these films. Uh, but I think all of these films are asking questions uh, about both the nature of competition, uh, but also, again, for something like Itania or The Favorite um, or, you know, Whip It, the complexities of competition, uh, regardless of the gender dynamics, but especially when you consider gender dynamics uh, within these competitions. I think uh, Tangerine also has a lot of this, right? Uh, dealing with, you know, trans women and cis women and uh, the complexities of, you know, re relationships and infidelities and, you know, friendships in the workplace and out of the workplace. And all of these questions are examined in all of these films. And I think each one of these pictures takes a different look at issues that are, at the end of the day, pretty close in alignment with each other, right? Whether we're talking about currying favor with the queen and the favorite, uh, or currying favor with a pimp and tangerine, we are dealing with hierarchies, and we are dealing with power structures, and we are dealing with love and family. And, uh, you know, lots of interesting things going on throughout all these films. Again, even something silly, like She's the Man, um, which is, you know, a pretty uh, good film and I, I, a part of that fun uh, run of Hollywood movies that were about making Shakespeare plays be uh, set in high schools. Um, I, again, I just think there's a lot of fun to be had uh, when you say, let's look at these films that don't seem to have a lot in common with one another and find those connections and, and and find the ways in which stories kind of end up echoing each other because all all of these stories right come from the same culture these are all american films for the most well yeah for the most part with the kind of the small exception of the favorite uh sorting having having a some european production uh sides of it but uh, again i think even if you know europe north america hey we're still dealing with the the, the larger issues of western culture uh writ large and again i think all of these movies kind of ask what competition looks like, what does collaboration, collaboration look like, especially, you know, you get into something like I, Tanya, um, really gets into uh, how uh, traumas we suffer in some relationships get carried over into other relationships. Uh, again, I, I think Pitch Perfect 3 has all of this stuff, right? It has the ways friendship can be messy, the ways friendship can be supportive. Uh, and, you know, Pitch Perfect 1, of course, does the classic team coming together shtick that, uh, you know, say your Avengers or whatever team up movie you want to talk about. It is all about how strong personalities don't always mesh right away. And it does take uh, time and uh, teamwork to, to sort of get personalities to mesh with one another. And I think there's lots of fun to be had here in all of these films. Uh, I think some of these films are great. I think some of them are just good, but I think they're all worthwhile as far as examining uh, the same issue. Uh, and of course, Pitch Perfect 3, um, does uh, re reveal that, you know, at the end of the day, whether it's an acapella competition uh, or a life or death stakes hostage crisis, you know, friendship conquers all, but that's all, that's all you need, dude. At the end of the day, it's just your pals, your homies, your ladies. All right, this is, that's it. That's all I got, Dustin. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you say, Arthur? What does your syllabus look like? Yeah, I think I'm going to pick up back on my uh, production class from last, uh, two weeks ago when we did Alien 3. Uh, and, and I want to talk about uh, film production and gender. So this kind of complements Dalton's class as well, I believe. Um, and, and I want to start out with an article from Ars Technica called A Not-So-Golden Age for Women uh, by Jennifer Ouellette. Uh, I got a couple of quotes, but this is an article that tracks the rise of the studio system against the oppression of women on camera and behind the camera. It's a really interesting, interesting. piece. Yeah. Uh, and so 
a couple of quotes here from the article directly. Uh, it said, from 1910 to 1920, women accounted for 40% of casts, wrote 20% of the movies, and produced and directed 5%. By 1930, in just 10 years, women in casts had dropped by half, and the number of women producing and directing was nearly zero. Uh, and then there's another quote taken. Uh, it's a quote from the article, uh, but it's in reference to Hollywood post the Paramount Decrees and the new Hollywood, kind of in that 60s to 80s era. Uh, and it says, when the studio systems was forced to deintegrate to some extent... Many movie stars became producers and directors, and I think that opened the door to greater diversity, said Amaral. The legal changes took power away from a handful of men and gave more people the power to start changing the industry. And I think from there we can kind of open that discourse of, obviously we're not at a great place now, but we are have progressed somewhat. There's still too much power in the hands of men. But, I mean, we, we talk a lot about women directors, but we rarely ever talk about female producers. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's a really big discussion because there are a lot of female producers and some of them pretty notable. Kathleen Kennedy being one of them, uh, who is responsible for, you know, quite a few franchises and few uh, blockbusters. Uh, so I, I think that's a really interesting discourse to have, not just, you know, women as director or writer, but also women as grip or women as producer or woman as cinematographer. You know, we talk a lot about... um Oh, uh, I can't think of her name. She uh, cinematographer on Mudbound and Black Panther. She was the first female director for cinematography. Rachel something. I'm, I'm blanking. Yeah, there. and I know I who feel you're really talking bad about. She's I'm, great. Well, I, yeah, she's great. We're all in the same um, spot right look, now. I can't do it. Yeah, My brain is on. Like, grinding. Um, yeah. So anyway, I, I want to talk about that kind of element of uh, women behind the scenes in, in production. Uh, and from there, I want to jump into another set of books here from Alicia Malone, critic and host. Uh, but she's got two, The Female Gaze, Essential Movies Made by Women, and she also has Backwards and in Hills, The Past, Present, and Future of Women Working in Film. And these feel like very complimentary texts to kind of look at the unsung heroes and, and pioneers in film uh, from uh, the female perspective and the ones that got ignored, uh, and one of them being Alice Guy Blachet, who's also on the syllabus, uh, noted as the first female director and one of the first featured film directors as well out of France. Uh, and looking at her films, The Life of Christ and The Cabbage Fairy, both are available on YouTube, very short. Um, and I, I would go with that. Uh, from there, I want to talk about Lotte Reiniger and The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, which is the oldest surviving feature animated film out of Germany, I believe. Uh, and so I want to take a look at that as well. And not just talking about uh, the influence on narrative film and feature film, but also an animation as well. I think that's really uh, interesting. From there, I want to jump up to Agnes Varda. Uh, I want to talk Cleo from 5 to 7. I want to talk about the French New Wave. I want to talk about her role in the French New Wave, what that looked like in shaping a new generation of filmmakers and, and women uh, filmmakers. And then finally, I want to go with a movie from Zoe Lister-Jones. I love Zoe Lister-Jones quite a bit from Life in Pieces, and uh, I think she had a stint on The New Girl. Uh, but she's got a couple of uh, directorial credits now under her uh, name, one of them being the recent Craft Legacy, uh, reboot, remake, legacy, sequel, whatever that is, um, but also the film Band-Aid, which was her first feature film, I believe, uh, and it was also the first film to use an entirely female crew on the production, uh, and so I think that's just a really interesting uh, note, a really in historic marker to kind of discuss and talk about and, and see what went into that and what the effects of that were, uh, both on the film and just on in comparison to some other productions. Uh, and I think that's where I'd end it and just kind of jumping into the modern 
uh, with Jones uh, because I, I, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in no tourism, and no tourism is usually a very great man theory type of discourse. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to kind of push down those walls and talk about everything else that goes beyond the scenes. And that's where I would go with this course, I think. All righty. Well, well th- Arthur, it, it sounds like you and I should just be pulling research for the same woman's class. Um, is, is really what it sounds like <laughs> because these are That's both fair. very good classes. And I, uh, by the way, we were of course talking about, or you were of course talking about Rachel Morrison, uh, Mudbound. I kept wanting Doe, to say Meadows, uh, but I knew that wasn't right. Right. Yeah. Fruitvale station, some great credits. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great eye. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, and of course, uh, thank you for bringing up Alicia Malone. Speaking of uh, places within film where women don't have enough representation, um, you know, I, I think a pretty legendary uh, or on our way to legendary film critic at this point uh, from her work with uh, Criterion and TCM. Yeah. All righty. Dustin, well, uh, as much as it's going to pain you to do this, how, how would you teach Pitch Perfect 3 in a class? I want to know. <laughs> I would give passing mention that it exists, and I would teach Pitch Perfect one, uh, and that would be it. I mean, because as a franchise, I think it's interesting that it exists, and I think in terms of women and gender studies, I think it's an interesting franchise to place in that. But I would not use a third film. I wouldn't use it at all. I just absolutely would not. Um, I not here or there, not anywhere. Um, Sam, I am, um, but I would use the first film, and I would place it in the context of a broader women's studies class. Uh, we read a lot of Tanya Modeleski. We read quite a bit of Laura Mulvey. We read Linda Williams. Uh, we read Ruby Rich. Uh, her Pomo Homo article uh, would be interesting there. I think we'd look at a handful of classical Hollywood films. With uh, obviously with Mulvey and Modaleski, you'd want to use some Hitchcock. I think we'd probably look at Rebecca, maybe Vertigo, but I'm kind of leaning more towards I like Rebecca. Rebecca. I, for the, yeah, I think that works for the pick there. Uh, for that, I think also uh, King Vidor's uh, Stella Dallas is an important sort of gender studies uh, uh film as well. And then uh, Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot. Uh, in terms of female filmmaking, um, there's a lot to be. Uh, uh, Catherine Bigelow is the first name that comes to mind, obviously, but also uh, the little scene film Watermelon Woman. Uh, uh, which I think is an important film about, again, uh, actors and stardom and that kind of stuff, but also uh, looking at this sort of a postmodern and uh, kind of avant-garde approach to that. Uh, Claire Denise Chocolat, I think, would be another film that's uh, in- interestingly dealing with uh, uh, issues of gender as well as a great uh, female filmmaker uh, from France uh, in Claire Denis. And so that would be what I would do. And then I think Pitch Perfect uh, would be an example, again, of... Uh, a franchise, a, a bit of uh, representation uh, that is uh, more contemporary that I'd probably conclude the class with. I'm not sure what exact readings with that film it would be, but it would, it would have to be part of a huge course uh, on women's studies, and that would be the yeah. only way I would ever incorporate it, I think. Again, Pitch Perfect I like a lot, and then when the day in which I talked about Pitch Perfect, I would mention that there were three films, and this was the third of those, and... That'd be the that'd be the extent of it. I just don't like it. So there there you go. I, I think I'd be I'd be intellectually dishonest to say I would use this in a class because I wouldn't. Well, and you know what, Dustin, I do appreciate your intellectual honesty, um, and and I'll share a bit of my own. Uh, I I sure am excited about it. these three very interesting sounding classes that uh, probably none of us should teach. Yeah, uh, somebody else should probably be teaching these classes. But you know, I think we did okay. I think the the three the three uh, dumb boys that we are, I think we've assembled a a not half bad uh, round of academic courses. Yeah, not not bad at all. I, I totally agree with that. So let's move on and get down to business. It's business. That's right, your listener. That business is, as always, analysis. 
Um, right. So we should analyze this here film. Um, daddy issues. Um, a plenty. We could talk about that. We could talk about uh, again the queerness of the film that it doesn't have that it should have. Uh, we could talk a bit about just the fact that we do have female heroines, which is great, except for they keep trying to pair them off with men. I'm just saying. Um, mm-hmm. We could talk about a number of things. Uh, what, what, what is your pleasure, fellas? Well, I think uh, Daddy Issues is a fun place to start, because uh, not because of the, the, the maleness of it, but I think because it allows us to talk about a... A film that shares kind of the same school of sequel making, and that is uh, Austin Powers and Goldmember. Uh, that's right. It's always, or, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean 3. Uh, it, it does seem to be a recurring trend that it is the second sequel in which our most mysterious character's parentage is revealed. Oh, right? like Star we get Wars. The backstory exactly. Exactly like that. I mean, truly, you're right. That is kind of a Return of the Jedi sort of deal. Um even if it is a part two twist, we oh, all rise of Skywalker, you know, even. Uh huh. Oh, God. If we must, I suppose we may, but I would prefer if we didn't. Uh, I do, when I say. Not a director, J.J. Abrams. Oh, yeah. Our, our finest filmmaker. We all love him. We all know him. Uh, his big glasses and his big curly. Maybe that's why I hate J.J. Abrams. Because he looks he like just you. Look like an old <laughs> yeah, he looks too much like me. That's why I don't like him. Of course. He was staring me in the face the whole time. I got to admit, I like uh, Star no, Trek Pitch Beyond Perfect. a lot more than this movie. But go ahead. I think this movie is so much better than Star Trek Beyond. I think you're a fool. Um, no, nah, I've looked. They're both perfectly fine films. I do appreciate about this film and something that I don't think Star Trek Beyond does. And this is what I'm trying to get at. You know, uh, Goldmember, Matrix Revolutions, like, I, I appreciate a sec- second sequel that just says, all right, well, if we get more movies, we definitely shouldn't be making them. <laughs> no no se- franchise probably needs more than two sequels. So let's bring out everything we've ever thought of and throw it at the screen and say, we think this might be a good idea. And we don't really care if you you do, because we're making this movie for people who already like this franchise. <laughs> And I uh, I don't know. I'm on board with it. I think this movie is nonsense, and I love that about it. I Fat Amy has always been this hurricane of a character, right? And the film, uh, both films that I've seen, obviously I haven't seen the second one, but Pitch Perfect 1 and 3 often kind of feel at odds with themselves over the character of Fat Amy, right? Because it is this, this self-brought-upon moniker. Um, and mentioned by Rebel Wilson in the first yeah. movie, she's I call myself Fat Amy, so other people can't call me fat. Yeah. You know, and it's it is this you know this very the, the string of body positivity running throughout the franchise, and yet the filmmakers can't help but make Rebel Wilson the butt of a lot of jokes. Yep. Um, there are a lot of fat girl falling down jokes in the first movie. Um, I'm sure the second one. Well, you well, just it's the inciting the incident of yeah, the, second movie. the second movie. Yeah, you described the second movie. Yeah, that's awful. Exactly. And to have Pitch Perfect 3 be about how this whole time uh, Amy has had this fucking nutso childhood that is like made her a uh, living weapon and, uh, you know, a perfect <laughs> career, a perfect career criminal. I love it. I The entire uh, third act of this movie is, is truly gonzo in a way that just appeals to me. I that I think is just as insane as the end of I don't know something like the Holy Mountain, right? Like I, it's easy to give some dude who did a bunch of drugs in the desert and got the Beatles to give him some money. It's easy to give that guy a pat on the ass and say 
good job with your wacky movie. I think it's a lot harder to give a studio movie that, yes, to Dustin's point, might have been an excuse for some some people to hang out with their friends and go on vacation. Uh, but to Arthur and I's points that we've made a couple of times, there aren't any franchises like that for women. There's, you know, Adam Sandler can sneeze and somebody will give him a paycheck to go to Hawaii uh, with Rob Schneider. Um, it, it is pretty rare that, uh, you know, Anna Kendrick, Rebel Wilson, Brittany Snow, Anna Camp, and Haley Steinfeld get to front a movie, um, let alone all of them getting to front a movie together. Uh, and I don't, I think there's value in that. And I think there's value in how truly bananas this this film goes. And uh, I think that's the only thing saving it to Dustin's point. And, you know, and I'm going to kind of walk backwards a little bit. I am with Arthur. I think I like this movie. I don't think it's great by any stretch of the imagination. I think if you can get on this film's wavelength, you're going to have a great time. And if you can't like Dustin, you're probably going to be pretty miserable because yeah, acapella is kind of inherently dorky. Uh, So if you can't get on this movie's sort of like bananas part three thing that it's doing, all you've got left is the acapella, which this movie doesn't have a whole lot of <laughs> because no, it's mostly not enough spends time making fun of acapella. Yeah, no, actually, the acapella thing I'm there for. I'm on board for it. But I got to say, I'm on board for Rebel Wilson doing action movie stuff. Her fight scenes are amazing. And I, They're yes, good I, can, fight scenes, I yeah. can see the cutaway doubles and I can see all that, but I don't care. It's fun. It, it's fun. It, it does have that sort of uh, strong Chris Farley kind of feeling yeah. uh, to it. And, uh, you know, which is, you know, a weird. You know, place to be in terms of the world of body positivity, as we've already addressed. Um, and I, I wonder about the sort of um, fat comedian um, sort of shtick, right? You know, like if a syllabus mm-hmm. could be composed of a Rebel Wilson and Melissa McCarthy mm-hmm. and Chris uh, Farley. Well, well, I was going to think Roseanne Barr. Um, oh, you could do um, you could do Amy oh, Schumer comedian. again. You know, yeah, because uh, yeah, yeah, what Amy I feel Schumer's pretty. Been... Yeah, well, it's so much of her show is dealing with, you know, being a woman in the entertainment industry, right? And the the body image stuff that, like, just trying to make a go of it. Kirstie Alley, yeah, sure. I mean, had that whole TV series about, you know, her her weight fluctuations and how that's impacted her career. Deep cut, I'd probably do Minnie Pearl, too. Ooh, good call. I I bring it up because I was watching, I've been watching Ken Burns' country music, and they go into some of her uh, self-confidence issues and how she was using that to kind of Mm. develop Minnie Pearl. Interesting. Where are you watching Ken Burns Country? It's on Canopy. Okay. Yeah. Cool. All it's eight parts, sixteen hours. I'm halfway through it. Nice. Didn't work that into my syllabus, Dalton. (laughs) But anyway, yeah. (laughs) I think you're. I mean, I think there is something interesting. I mean, um, Melissa McCarthy's made a big career off of it, and so yeah. And someone we haven't really discussed on the show, and I think would be someone we need to talk about at some point. Yeah. Did any of us even mention the Ghostbusters reboot in all of our discussion so far? You know, I almost because I almost talked about doing like a female-led franchises type thing, and I thought about Ghostbusters. You know, it would be on there. Ocean's 8 was going to be on there as well. It's kind of a one-off, yeah. Yeah. And... Mm. I wouldn't have a lot of probably good things to say about it. I mean, it. That's, that is a good thing about the existence of a Pitch Perfect 3, is that it is a women-led franchise that made it into full th- trilogy you know, yeah. com- completion, right? Yeah. yeah. It, 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 I, again, I, I do think it fumbled its finish, but I don't really blame that on the actors, the actresses, or the ideologies behind it. It's just, it's just poorly made uh, for my money. But um, It definitely feels slapdash, but I, I don't think it feels slapdash in sort of a nobody cared way, uh, which is, you know, I, I don't think a, necessarily a charge you've leveled at it entirely. Um, but I won't disagree with you, Dustin, that it, it feels made on the fly. But right. I think part of that probably is the number one, the quickness of the green light, right? Uh, from, you know, the opening of sequel one to the green lighting of sequel two. 
I don't imagine that they had much of a uh, a supportive schedule. You know what I mean? I, I have a feeling that when they greenlit, when Universal greenlights another Pitch Perfect sequel, they're probably saying you have well, what was it, forty-five million dollars or whatever I said was the uh, the uh, quoted budget. You have this much money and this much time to give us a Pitch Perfect sequel, and if you don't do it, there's no Pitch Perfect sequel, right? And I, I imagine, obviously, this is just me gaming out. Uh, what kind of industry shenanigans might have been going on in the production of this film. But it, it certainly I, does not require me to stretch my imagination much to imagine a world where they would have pulled the plug on Pitch Perfect 3 if uh, production didn't go the way Universal wanted it to. I think also that, you know, in addition to that, I, I feel like as much as I enjoy it, it's a narrative setup that doesn't really have a lot of mileage. And, you know, Dustin talking about it, it's just kind of stick after stick and slap kind mm -hmm. of slapstick moment after moment. And it, because that central thesis doesn't really have great legs anyway, you know, mm -hmm. it's like if they tried to franchise out Talladega Nights or if they tried to franchise mm -hmm. uh, Blades of Glory, those are movies that the joke is it's a movie about an acapella group. And to try to franchise that out, I think, really shows the kind of narrative shortcomings that the, the franchise has. Well, yeah, I, I think it also really is illustrative of the difficulties of uh, female-led, uh, female-empowering filmmaking. I mean, you know, the, the, the reason... I, I'm not, I'm not going to step back from saying this movie's bad, um, but yeah. I am also going to point out that it is a small budget and a small turnaround time. And that's, again, the way in which um, they, they start with, you know, one hand tied behind their back. And the fact that mm -hmm. this movie is um, so dismal, again, in my opinion, and I guess according to the Tamamometer as well, I did not know that, but yeah. 23% uh, so of critics are correct in then Arthur and I's corner. Okay, okay, well, that's, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so yeah, it, it, that being said, though, um, that's the kind of statistic, though, that prevents... Yeah. Other franchises, other films, other female-led casts, other female-led creative teams uh, from getting money. And, and it, it, it's a weird snake-eating-its-tail-vicious cycle that Pitch Perfect itself is such a success. And uh, then now it's going to be the Flash in the Pan because they couldn't just repeat it over and over and over again like you can a man movie. And uh, because it's just a different beast as a thing. And um, I just I, I'm frustrated with this movie because... I, I want it to be good. I want it to be successful. I want it to do really well at what it's doing. And uh, I don't blame anybody involved with it so much, but it is a squandered opportunity nonetheless. And it frustrates me. Well, and it... Oh, go ahead, Arthur. I was just, I, I just was wanting to see the numbers on this one just out of curiosity. Uh, and it, it made $190 million. Okay, well, that's I great. Mean, and it is the second highest grossing musical comedy of all time. Behind his predecessor, huh? <laughs> Not a lot of musical uh, comedy sequels. <laughs> in third place, it is followed up by uh, School of Rock, uh, also co-written by Mike White, <laughs> who co-wrote oh, uh, Pitch Perfect. Yeah, it's a little bit of a little bit of fun stuff there. Uh, but Dustin, I'm glad you brought up the you know um, 2016's Ghostbusters colon answer the call right uh, because to that point, you know that's a film that has a a whole lot more. Uh, fighting and yelling going on on the internet around it than Pitch Perfect because because yeah. uh, well most men are little boys and don't like having their toys taken away um, and, and I, I think it puts people in a weird position right of having to go to bat for a movie that they don't even really like because of a bunch of dickheads on the internet 
Um, and I only bring this up because I do remember that kind of being some of the discourse around uh, Ghostbusters 2016 when it came out was you had critics of, you know, multiple gen uh, genders going, oh, man, I don't this movie's just fine. But like, I can't, you know, it puts people in a hard spot to to have to argue the merits of a just OK film when it's become a political uh, yeah. issue, a, a, you know, a. a God, I, I don't even know how to address the. Well, you could be J.J. Abrams as a man and make a bunch of mediocre films and keep failing upward. But as a female exactly. filmmaker, you can make one mediocre film like, well, so much for that. We can't be. Do I mean, that's that's the problem. Yeah. Well, and yeah, who who suffers, right? Not Paul Feig, director of Ghostbusters 2016, right? It is uh, the cast. Everybody mm -hmm. else. Yeah. Everybody else. Uh, and that film has the same problem that this film has, right? You have a famously uh, gay actor. Uh, who's playing horny, just <laughs> neutrally horny throughout the film because the studio cannot fathom making a character explicitly gay in their four-quadrant blockbuster. Uh, and even in something like Pitch Perfect 3, which has way more niche appeal, uh, they, they can't allow it. And that, that is kind of an absurdity to me, really, is... Uh, I don't know. It's not like Pitch Perfect is a children's franchise, right? Like, right. This is a movie for uh, older teens and young adults, and uh, yeah, people people from the ages of like seventeen to thirty five. This is not a. I don't understand uh, the studio calculation behind uh, not letting two characters with chemistry just go ahead and have a relationship. Uh, but again, this brings us to yet another J.J. Uh, Abrams studio failing in, uh, you know, I, we don't have to talk about Rise of Skywalker yet again on this episode, but a, another time a second sequel should have been gayer than it was. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the formula for success here is to embrace the queerness of what's going on in the film. And then um, following our discussion of last week from Star Trek Beyond is to follow the Glee mm -hmm. model, is to basically build out a 90-minute episode of Glee. Uh, using acapella singing with this group of uh, yeah. very, very talented musicians, uh, singing a lot of songs that we know and are familiar with. I mean, that's the formula, and I think that works. And uh, that's what Pitch Perfect the first began with, and that's what they really just need to keep moving forward. Uh, and they could have built it around any number of circumstances. Well, and this is where I do disagree, because I think, and maybe it's just because I have so much fun with the sort of 80s ski school movie uh, it, I, I, I like the tropiness of Pitch Perfect 3 in that it does feel like such a Hollywood concoction, right? A studio concoction to to keep the band together, right? It, it is like if they'd made a third – like they could. They tried to make a second Blues Brothers movie uh, 20 years too late uh, despite the death of one of the key figures, right? What if they had you know, not lost one of their key figures and tried to hammer out a third uh, Blues Brothers. What if they had, God forbid, insisted on making a third Ghostbusters before the end of the 80s or the end of the 90s, right? Like, there is only so much narrative juice you can squeeze out of certain stories, and I appreciate Pitch Perfect 3 acknowledging that and going, all right, well, what's the wackiest, weirdest thing we can do? And just following that impulse across most scenes. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like it's got more cohesion to it we were we've been talking about it as a series of bits strung together and i really feel like star trek beyond has that same problem and handles it a little less well if, if that makes sense and maybe it is just because i am so into the frying pan spatula versus big knife fight that takes place in the kitchen <laughs> on that yacht oh i like that yeah it's fun yeah i'm super into it i think uh, i think everything that rebel wilson gets to do is great in this movie and i think 
the the third movie is the one where you let uh, Fat Amy be the star, and I think it makes perfect sense. I, I think it works to let the the kind of chaotic character take over the movie and let that character's energy bring the franchise along with her. All right, well, fair enough. Um, I guess the last thing I'll say about Star Trek Beyond in relationship to this is that it does a better job, in my mind, of bringing us from attack scene from small minion uh, aliens to big beehive, you know, monster, you know, spaceships to dirt bike scene to underwater spaceship flight, you know, blocking uh, torpedoes with our dish kind of scene it, it it links them narratively in a way that's more satisfying um though thematically it's a, still a hmm. complete mess and i don't find sure, the, you... the narrative linkage oh, between ahead. the set pieces of pitch perfect three uh that i don't mind the bits but i don't i'm, yeah. I'm not appreciative I, of how they're linked i i i see because i think that the rebel stuff does kind of feel shoehorned in yeah i i can mm-hmm. see that kind of argument well, I whether mean, it works or not, but I, 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 Lil Pimp or whatever. I mean, that's a great bit. That's really, really funny. Uh, showing up to sing and you don't get to sing. That's kind of funny. Yeah. You know, SmackDown with uh, mm-hmm. Evermoist. That's kind of funny. Like, I, I, you know, all those bits are fine, but narratively speaking, it's just like, oh, okay. And, and, and now just another damn thing. Yeah. Well, and I think that's definitely a fair point because, yeah, th- this movie it uses a lot of montage to kind of string disparate things together. Um, I guess the only difference is Star Trek Beyond uses, you know, screenplay coincidences to string things together. Uh, and, you know, as much as I don't like a, a story that's run by coincidence, it does feel more cohesive than, a, uh, you know, a movie that's run by montage. And, you know, we get a fair point, Dustin. You're absolutely right. I mean, just from a kind of uh, how well is the story work thing, I'm not going to disagree with you too hard on that one. I, I think you got a good point there. Um I don't know we're we're running out of time here, so I do just want to bring up uh, the whole bit between um, Esther slash Lily and the DJ. Oh man, what a joy! The That's Starburst fun. thing. Oh my god, I I could have used at least three more. Well, you know, like three scenes is probably exactly what they they need for the comedy math of it. But uh, that's a movie right there, and I guess maybe that is my. That is the the biggest praise that I can give Pitch Perfect 3 is I love that every member of the main cast is in their own film, and I just kind of wish that each of them got to have more of their own film. Can we please, though, sense. unpack her inability to speak? The devil has left she's me. She's possessed by Satan. And she's possessed by Satan, clearly. <laughs> I want to yes. know the mechanism by which Satan possessed her and the mechanism by which she is really... Is it because she was a witness to terrible violence? I mean, I... I want to know more about the sort of weird, you know, theology of the power of Christ compelling whatever it is outside of her and the way in which the movie is silencing the one Asian character in the whole. I'm just what is that all about? Well, I'm not even prepared to start unpacking the way that this film uses women of color. Uh, I think we're going to be here for another two hours if we try to do that. Okay, but I agree, I'm... Dustin, that it is a weird choice to have the uh, – and we shouldn't say one because Haley, Haley Steinfeld uh, has uh, uh, Filipino ancestry, uh, mm-hmm. among other things in her background. I um, don't want to you know, do any erasure there. But you're right. The, the most visually, clearly uh, Asian member of the cast is – uh, made silent uh and i don't know there is a trope unpacking that could be done there cleverly right some model minority uh, uh uh subversions type stuff going on in that idea and honestly i mean that is kind of how lily is deployed right she is quiet but it, it is deployed in a way that is very weird uh, and unsettling for people and i i think is 
from a comedy standpoint, works very well uh, without playing too much on, you know, her. Well, maybe it does traffic a little too much in exoticizing Lily. Ooh, God, now that I think, see, exactly. We, we could be here all day trying to unpack this shit. <laughs> but I'm glad you brought it up, Dustin, because it needed to be talked about. Absolutely. And again, I, I want to know the instrumentation by which she is unsilenced. Is it, again, because a white man did violence against her? I mean, that's not good. Yeah. Surely it must just be the power of song, right? I don't, they I don't, don't sing at that point. I mean, it's it. She's just sitting there. She's still silent until they jump out of the boat and hit. And they, people are hitting their head on rowboats, and I don't know. What? No, they do a, a fantastic performance of the Britney Spears classic "Toxic." Oh, yeah. Well, they do that, but they do a lot of music. I don't think you can associate that with it. Yeah, I mean, if that's that were the case, you'd have the first movie. Well, you know, it's the power of song bringing friends together. It feels like they were like, "Hey, peril. what's the best punchline we could have came up with for this I bit?" Agree. What? I oh, she's demon possessed. Okay, it, it is, and it's very a good stupid. Bit. I, I mean, it, it, yeah, it, I laugh. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it, it is extreme. And Arthur, it's, you're 100. That is exactly it. It's Kay Cannon and Mike White going. All right, how do we put a button on the the Lily bit that's been because, going on for three movies? Because now? <laughs> any movie where you have a silent character, they have to speak loudly at the end of the movie. We see it with Sphinx mm-hmm. in Gone in 60 Seconds. I mean, it's a <laughs> right, right, age old trope, and for them to put mm-hmm. this spin on it. What yeah, we've truly found is ourselves. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, and I think it's just it's a it's a great payoff to this this kind of trope bit that they've played with for three movies now. I think the only other thing worth mentioning, and I, I don't know how much there is to say about it, so maybe I just want to kind of throw this out here and see what you guys have to say. There, there's a moment where uh, Becca gets to dunk on uh, DJ Khaled's producer, whatever that cute English guy's deal is, uh, where. Uh, He's like, oh, yeah, look at this fun setup. Look at this mic and this mixer. And she's like, ah, oh, yeah, it must be real nice to be really, really rich. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the the other kind of uh, moment that I think is kind of hooked into that is the sort of uh, music snobbery going on between the quote-unquote actual bands yeah. uh, and, and uh, the Bart Bellas, right? So there, yeah, so there's some art snobbery stuff going on here, but there's also some, like, classism within the artistic world. Right and uh, some often authenticity versus uh, success stuff going on. I don't know about that class thing. I don't. It's pretty thin. Yeah, because, that's why I, I mean, said I like. I don't really know how much Becca is there. gets a free ride to college because her dad's a professor. Oh, oh, what is that part of the plot? That's right. That's what she goes to that college because her dad's a professor. And he wants her to get a degree before she drops out to become a producer. Right. So oh. I mean, she's got the privilege. Amy is alluded to even in the first film of being somewhat of privilege because she goes to vacation in like Australia or whatever. Like, and you know, we talk about, uh, Anna camp's dad being this high ranking general. So she's not hurting. Right. I mean, she gets to, uh, make a call and get put on this USO tour without any issue. Yeah. They're all kind of sorority sisters, aren't they? A little bit the way they've written it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Again, and that is nice, like to, to let everybody get to be successful at the end of the movie. But what, what message does that send that, uh, the only real success is the monetary one, right? Like uh, somebody makes a comment about uh, Flo's uh, juice truck. And she's like, I own that juice truck. And also yeah. I'm franchising it, which yeah. is like, okay, good for Flo for being, a, you know, for, for uh, owning her own means of production, but also is like, mm, is franchising out really like what this character needs in her life? Is that like really success? I don't know, man. I don't know what success looks like. Uh, definitely not the person to ask, but you're absolutely right, Arthur, that uh, it's, uh, gestures towards any sort of class consciousness or uh, probably just gestures at that. I think the art snobbery thing might be something of interest, but I don't really know how to parse that out much. Yeah, more. and I, mm-hmm. same. 
the only thing that I have to talk about is just kind of this concept something I mentioned already is this conception of acapella is kind of dorky, but yeah. like, you know, I, again, I don't really have anything. I think it's interesting. The movie plays with it, but yeah, I, I agree. I don't, it's like I don't bluegrass really purists, right? It. You know, like you're a, you're a purist sure. of any sort of, you know, um, genre, traditional yeah. genre. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. I mean, again, I don't, yeah, that's, I think that's a good place to, to <laughs> take it on home. All right. Let's run to a no, verdict. I, I then. Yeah. What do you say? Shelf let's or trash? It. Arthur go. Uh, I am going to shelf it with a similar caveat you had with Alien 3, and that is you put the whole franchise on the on Okay, the shelf. all right. I, I think this film, though, alone is would be a very, very, very soft trash. All right, fair enough, fair enough. What do you say, Dalton? I, I'm with Arthur. I think it's probably a truly absurd thing to do to shelf just Pitch Perfect 3, although I would love to take a look at that chaotic uh, Blu-ray collection. <laughs> uh, it's truly it's Pitch Perfect 3. It's that uh, it's that five dollar bin, ten action movies. All right, and Hasu. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! And Dustin has there it is. Dustin has unlocked why I like Pitch Perfect three so much. It's got big Hasu energy, and we'll just leave it at that. B A G, big Hasu energy. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Dustin, Ooh, what about you, bud? Trash. Uh, no, uh, watch the first one, not <laughs> sure. this one. I think he's got a. I think he's got a leading candidate for the uh, the Hebrew Hammer. Man, I don't like this movie very much at all. So uh, there you go, dear listener. Um, uh, those are our thoughts. Um, Dalton, say social media things. I don't think we did it last time. No, you didn't let me do it last time, but that's perfectly fine. We don't need to do it every week. And Hi, next week listener. we're going to be. <laughs> Son of a bitch. And we ran out of time once again. Oh, no. We're going to start getting a, a Matt Damon on Kimmel bit going with the plugs, aren't we? Uh, listener, if you want to tell uh, Dustin how wrong he is, uh, if you want to tell all three of us that we're uh, sexists because our uh, our classes on gender weren't uh, good enough, um, that's fine. And I, I appreciate being yelled at. You can send your long-form feedback to goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also follow us, good underscore trash, on Twitter. Uh, you'll find links to uh, our episodes here. You'll also find um, uh, ways to get into all of the other stuff that's part of the Good Trash Media family. Um, the Wheel of Randy with Dan Wade, The Praise Down with Heath and Alex. Uh, heck, by just subscribing to this show, you get access to a second show, Twilight with Aaron and Kirsten, uh, where uh, they groovy. unpack the Twilight. It's very groovy. Dustin's been on it. Um, really fun episode. That's honestly. the worst the episode Dustin's of the whole on. thing. But yeah. Oh, it's absolutely the, uh, a dog shit uh, compared to uh, all the other episodes. That's it's probably great Dustin's show. Yeah, it is entirely uh, my No, point. I'm kidding. Dust, Dustin's episode's fun. It's it's really fun to listen to them talk about vampire lore uh, at large uh, and how it kind of compares to the uh, Twilight mythos. So if you're unsure whether or not a show about twi Twilight's for you, um, that's probably a good one to start with. Again, it's already in the Good Trash feed. You already like Dustin, presumably, so a good one to start with. But again, if you've been hanging around Good Trash stuff for a while, you probably heard Kirsten on a show or two. So uh, yeah, check it out. Uh, Twilight with uh, Kirsten and Aaron. Uh, the Praise Down with Ethan Alex, uh, The Wheel of Randy, all all good shows, all part of the Good Trash Media Network, uh, which, again, uh, at good underscore trash on Twitter, probably going to be the best way to find all of those other than the website, which uh, uh, doesn't have all of those on there, I don't think. But that is goodtrashmedia.com. Finally, if you go to patreon.com forward slash GTM, um, there's all kinds of fun bonus stuff there for you. Uh, you can get a big mug. You can listen to Dustin and uh, Arthur and I play nerd poker. That's right. We've got an actual play podcast because who doesn't these days? Uh, all sorts of fun things. Patreon.com forward slash GTM. That's the end of the plugs. Arthur, uh, we are approaching the end of part three's part two, are we not? We are. We've got one more. 
We have a fourth threequel. We do. A 43rdquel. A 43rdquel. What? That doesn't even make Urkel. Next week, we're going to wrap up this year. Actually, as we have the last couple of years, we're going to be taking a look at the highest grossing domestic gross film of the year. And it felt so fitting to be able to build this uh, marathon around this film in, in such a way that we could still loop that in as the kind of gimmick episode of the year. Uh, because next week on episode 399, we're going to be taking a look at Will Smith, Martin Lawrence, Bad Boys for Life. Oh, my. All right, then. Uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. So you keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time.